This morning we'll be in Luke 12, chapter 12, verse 13, and the words are on the screen as you see. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now we will turn to Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. The word of the Lord. Good morning. All right, to uh, really get us going this morning, we've put together a little something I want you to, uh, to watch and listen to this. And when her looking glass shows every time-worn wrinkle, Helen weeps and wonders why she twice was stolen for love. Time, the devourer, and the jealous years with long corruption ruin all the world and waste all things in slow mortality. Ovid, Metamorphoses. Oh, how shall summer's honey breath hold out against the wreckful siege of battering days? When rocks impregnable are not so stout, nor gates of steel so strong, but time decays. Shakespeare, The Sonnets. O Theseus, dear friend, only the gods can never age. The gods can never die. All else in the world, almighty time obliterates, crushes all to nothing. The earth's strength wastes away. Sophocles, Oedipus at Colonus. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun arises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James 1, 10 through 11. So every uh, week with our staff meeting, I usually have a quote of the week that I give at the end of the meeting. And uh, 
The staff makes fun of me because my quotes are often rather depressive. And so I thought in the spirit of solidarity with the staff and you all, I would give you all depressing quotes to start off our sermon series this morning. So we're kicking off a new five-week series titled In Money We Trust, Putting Our Faith Where It Belongs. And throughout the series, we're going to be looking at the relationship between our faith and our finances, and especially this issue of dependence. What are we depending on to take care of us? I think there's a certain irony here in this. this is why we marketed the series as we have with the images that we have, because we have printed on our money, in God we trust. But when the, if we think about the reality in our culture, truly, there's one thing that we really trust in, probably above all other things besides God, in the place of God, it's money. So the fact that we print on our money in God we trust has a certain irony to it. And I want us to really, I want to challenge that. In all cultures throughout history, not, of course, the least in our, in our culture, money means power, money means security, money means respect and health and pleasure. Those with lots of money are the influencers and the shapers of the culture, And as Christians, of course, we're not immune to any of this. We're not immune to the draw of money. We need it just like everyone else in order to pay for our housing and our clothing and our food and our transportation. Even Jesus needed money. So for Christians, navigating our relationship with money can be tricky precisely because we need it. So how do we live a life of genuine dependence on God while also living in the real world, the real tangible physical world that depends upon money. So if you're a Christian and you find yourself tempted to trust more in your money than your God, which I think, if we're all honest, is going to be all of us at certain points in our life, then this series is for you. And if you're not a Christian, or perhaps you're not even especially religious in any way, but you've you've wondered what Jesus and the Bible have to say about money. Perhaps you've sensed how fleeting worldly money can be. Then I invite you to listen in and consider Christianity's perspective on money. I think there's something in this series for you equally as well. Let me give you just a quick overview of where we're going to be going over the next uh, five weeks. So briefly, uh, starting today, of course, the 29th, the Vanity of Earth, we're going to be answering a primary question with each series, right, or each sermon in the series. So the vanity of Earth, that's today, answering this question, what shouldn't I be living for? October 6th, the bounty of God, what should I be living for? October 13th, the whole pie, how much should I give? October 20th, family first, where should I give? October 27th, give to get, why should I give? So we're going to be trying to answer these questions and kind of sub-questions that go along with these questions throughout the next five weeks. So without further ado, let's jump into here our first sermon in the series. And our goal with this morning's sermon, my goal with this morning's sermon is to clear away, as it were, the rubble, to clear away the competition that competes with God when it comes to the issue of dependence and security. So our guiding question again for today, what shouldn't I be depending upon to take care of me? 
I'll give you a hint here at the beginning. The answer starts with M and rhymes with honey. You got it. Jesus gives us at least two reasons. I think he gives us a lot more than two reasons, but he gives us at least two reasons for why we shouldn't depend upon money to take care of us. We're going to look at these two passages that have already been read for us, and then I'm going to, so we're going to walk through both passages, and then I'm going to make some, some concluding thoughts. So let's go ahead and get started. Should be turning your Bible to Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Looking at verses 13 through 21, let me give you the first reason from this passage that Jesus gives us for why we should not look to money to take care of us. Reason number one, we shouldn't depend upon money to take care of us because human beings have needs that money can't meet. Human beings have needs that money can't meet. All right, so the parable is told here. Jesus is out. He's teaching in public. Someone shouts from the crowd and says, hey, uh, master, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's trying to leverage Jesus's uh, popularity and authority to try to get his brother to do something for his benefit. Jesus doesn't uh, take the bait, but he says in verse 15, take care and be on your guard, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he goes on to tell a parable. And the parable, of course, which we just read, it's not particularly hard to follow. We have the, a rich uh, man who has um, made uh, lots of wealth through his economic activity, probably farming, it sounds like. And so he's got so much, he doesn't know what to do with all of his wealth. And so he builds bigger barns to put all of his uh, wealth and his material possessions in. And he tells himself, comforts himself, saying, ah, now at last, I will be happy, I will live on into my old age, I will, I will be merry and drink and eat. But the night after he builds the barns, he dies and his plan comes to nothing. We have this foolish, industrious man who amasses a surplus of money, thinking that his wealth can deliver him into comfort and ease, but it, does, but it doesn't. No sooner has he built his barns to store his wealth than he dies. And then what good is his wealth? How many times do you think has the truth of this parable been lived out in real life just like the story has been told throughout human history? Perhaps you know someone for whom this is true. They worked their whole life building up their retirement nest egg and the day after they retired, they died. How many people have depended on their wealth only to have their wealth fail them? Now, you might be saying, well, wait a second. His wealth didn't fail him. He failed himself. I mean, he died, right? His wealth didn't die. He died. But that's precisely Jesus' point. Our money can do a lot of things for us, but it can't ultimately supply our most basic need for life. The foolish rich man was foolish precisely because he was looking to money to secure his future. But money, no matter how much you have, can secure your future. Not all the money in the world can keep the sun from burning out and the whole universe from going dark and cold, not on a global scale and not on an individual personal scale. 
Putting your faith in money to deliver your, you into your future is a vain hope precisely because money can't deliver you into your future. Being rich in this world is like being rich on a sinking ship. What good is it to be rich when the ship of one's life is inevitably going down? What good is your money then in that moment? But we can say more here with this parable. We can extend the main point that Jesus is making in this parable to all of our most basic needs. Look again at Jesus' words in verse 15. He prefaces the parable that he's telling by stating that one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. The human life consists of deep needs that money cannot meet and of need for things that money can't buy. Money can't buy love. Money can't purchase respect. It can't guarantee physical safety. It can't give lasting purpose. And it can't secure our ultimate hope for the future. It can't even keep us alive into a long retirement. Is it possible, as we begin this sermon series on money, perhaps you haven't reflected deeply on money, perhaps you have, but is it possible that you are looking for money to do something in your life that it simply doesn't have the power to do? Perhaps you're looking for money to give you respect in the eyes of others. You maybe haven't thought of it in quite those terms, but somewhere in the back of your mind, you you respect people who have big homes and nice cars and influential positions in the world, and you think that somehow if you also have a big home and a nice car and an influential position in the world, that you would be worthy of respect, just like the people that you respect. Perhaps you're looking for respect through money in your own eyes, perhaps in the eyes of your parents. I really am going to amount to something. And what does that mean, amount to something? It means I'm going to have a big car and a nice home and I'm going to live in a good neighborhood on a nice street and then my parents will, will think that I've amounted to something. Maybe you look to money because it makes you feel in control, gives you a sense of security and safety. You're not necessarily looking to, to live in the big home and the nice car on the nice street, but you want lots of money in the bank because you want to know your future is secure. And you're making the same mistake of the foolish rich man who thinks his future is secure because he's got lots of money. But his money can't guarantee him a secure future. Or maybe there's some deep unknown longing inside of you. You can't quite put a name to it. A longing for exactly what you don't know. But you hope vaguely and and, and sort of indirectly that money will meet that longing and you'll at last be happy. There's a, a book that I read recently this year called Sister Carrie. It's not about a nun, though I thought it was about a nun when I started the book, but it's actually about the futility of earthly things, earthly pleasures, particularly money, to usher us into the good life. It's written in 1900, 
by a guy named Theodore Dreisler. And uh, the main character is this young lady named Carrie, and she's moved to Chicago, and she is just pursuing riches and wealth. She's the nicest young lady you've ever met, but she thinks that her happiness and her hope, this vague sense of longing, is going to be met in material possessions. Listen to what, uh, uh, how Dreisler writes of this one scene where Carrie and a friend, Mrs. Hale, are tooling around Lakeshore Drive looking at all the nice houses. As they drove along the smooth pavement, an occasional carriage passed. She saw one stop and the footman dismount, opening the door for a gentleman who seemed to be leisurely returning from some afternoon pleasure. Across the broad lawns, now first freshening into green, she saw lamps faintly glowing upon rich interiors. Now it was but a chair, now a table, now an ornate corner which met her eye. But it appealed to her as almost nothing else could. Such childish fancies as she had had of fairy palaces and kingly quarters now came back. She imagined that across these richly carved entranceways where the globed and crystalled lamps shone upon paneled doors set with stained and designed panes of glass was neither care nor unsatisfied desire. She was perfectly certain that here was happiness. If she could but stroll upon yon broad walk, cross that rich entranceway, which to her was of the beauty of a jewel, and sweep in grace and luxury to possession and command, oh, how quickly would sadness flee! How in an instant would the heartache end! I love that passage. Of course, we're all like, oh, yeah, money, money doesn't really give that. But we live like that a little bit, don't we? We live like that a little bit. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think that if you only had more money and nicer things, all heartache would end. But that's making the same mistake as the rich fool in Jesus' parable, thinking that money, whether you have a lot of it currently or whether you're trying to get a lot of it, is the answer to your life's problems. If you've been in church for a while, you'd perhaps no doubt know the story of Solomon. He was one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest in terms of a political sense, greatest of the Jewish kings, the wealthiest for sure man of his time. He amassed wealth beyond measure. The book of Ecclesiastes is a, is a recounting of his life, and so much of his life was amassing wealth. And at the height of his wealth, he wrote this book of Ecclesiastes lamenting how grievous and empty his life was, how wealth couldn't meet the deepest human need. Now listen, Jesus isn't teaching some pie-in-the-sky idea that we don't need any money, nor does he glorify poverty. He's got a lot of things to say about poverty and taking care of the poor. Living in poverty is a hard reality. The Bible makes that very clear. And it's full of difficulty. And we all need some money in order to meet our basic needs. All right, so my point here is not that we shouldn't have any money or we don't need money. If we're really spiritual, we wouldn't need money. It's not my point. Right? This, but this, this idea of pursuing wealth as the means of happiness. Even the secular sociologists who study these things tell us that while money is indeed a factor in happiness, there's a limit to it. Now, if you've ever read any of these studies, you can just Google it and you'll see there's lots of 
data on this. After they say about sixty dollars to $70,000 in today's dollars for an individual, there is a law of diminishing returns. And the more money you have, statistically, the less likely you are to be happy. Isn't that interesting? Our society tells us that the more money you have, the happier you get. But the reality is, the more money you have, your happiness gets increasingly more delicate and compromised. We hear that. It's hard to believe it. Go back to Sister Carrie here. After Carrie has observed all this beauty, her friend Mrs. Hale says, oh, if we could have such a house as that, how delightful it would be. And yet they do say, said Carrie, that no one is ever really happy. I noticed, though, said Mrs. Hale, that they all try mighty hard to take their misery in a mansion. And don't we try that? Don't we try that? We all say that money can't buy happiness. I mean, that's just a trite line. But we doesn't stop us from trying to take our misery in a mansion. We're like, yeah, no, I know money doesn't buy happiness, but I'd rather be unhappy in a mansion, you know? And so we're just going <laughs> to spend our lives trying to pursue the mansion. Why is that, do you think? Why is that? Really take a minute and ask yourself why that is. Why do we keep going back to an empty well? If you think on your own life, and if you've lived, you know, kind of through a number of seasons of life, right, early, you know, before you're married and then early married and then on through, right, right, like you can think back on your life and if you're probably honest with yourself and self-reflective critically and honestly, you'll note that like you didn't get more or less happy as you moved through life getting more or less money. Again, statistically, the sociologists say that when you come into new wealth, there's about a two to three week euphoria that hits. But then after two to three weeks, you pretty much go back to the same level of happiness that you were before you got the new wealth. And I think what we do is we're, we're really, we're, we're addicted to the euphoria, so we keep trying to increase the wealth to get the new euphoria. But it always goes back down. We're just pretty much have a set point of happiness that isn't connected to wealth once you get beyond a certain amount, a basic amount. And it doesn't matter how much you get beyond that, it can't make you happy. What core needs do you have? And here I mean legitimate needs, insofar as all needs are legitimate needs. What core needs do you have that you are vainly thinking money can satisfy? More than anything, my prayer for all of us, self-included, is that the Lord would shake us free from the grip that money has upon us, that we would stop believing the lie that the more money we have will always mean more happiness. It doesn't. Money can never be the ultimate answer to the human condition because, listen, the human condition consists of more than money can buy. Money cannot meet the needs of the human condition because the human condition has needs that outstrip the purchasing capacity of money. So the first reason we shouldn't depend upon money to take care of us is because we have needs that money can't meet. All right, so on to our second reason in our second text, Matthew 6, 19. You can turn over there, 619 through 21. Second reason, we shouldn't depend upon money to take care of us. We shouldn't depend upon money to take care of us 
because money can't even take care of itself. Look at this. In the, Luke's, in the Luke parable, the, the story that we just read in Luke, the rich man gave out, as it were, before his possessions gave out. The rich man died before his possessions were uh, scattered to the four winds. Here in this passage, Jesus picks up the same stick, but from the other end. So we're still talking about the futility of wealth, but here he's not talking as so much about uh, the futility of, of our needs and the needs that we have, but about wealth itself. The focus here is not on the frailty of human life, but on the frailty of earthly treasure. So note the reason here Jesus gives for why we shouldn't gather up earthly treasure. It's right there in the first verse. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. We say, well, well, why not? And Jesus says, because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Well, it's pretty straightforward. One way or another, everything earthly is destined to perish. Fine clothes are eaten by moths, Fine cars, perhaps chariots to keep it in their context, are destroyed by rust. Fine jewels are stolen by thieves. Jesus is reminding us here, it's a pretty straightforward basic truth, but he's reminding us of it, that even the very best things that money can buy will one day be ruined, broken, or possessed by others. The house that you've spent so much time and money and energy remodeling is one day going to be knocked over. Just let that kind of sink in there as you start that next building project in your home. <laughs> the car that you wash and wax each weekend is going to one day be a pile of rust and rubber. It does not matter how much you change the oil, how often you take it to the mechanic, how often you wax or polish it. But at some point in the future, that car is going to be nothing more than a pile of rust and rubber. The clothes that you obsess over will be in the trash in another season or two. Your phone, your computer, your furniture, your lawnmower, the list goes on and on. Nothing you can buy will last. So let that sink in. If it can be bought with money, it will not last. Time levels all things. That's the point of the depressing quotes at the beginning of the sermon. And there is nothing, listen to this, there is nothing that we can do about it. No matter how hard we try to take care of our possessions, we cannot stop the decay and the effects of time. And did you catch that? Listen closely for the irony here. No matter how hard you try to take care of your wealth, you can't preserve it. No matter how hard you try to take care of your wealth, you can't preserve it. Who's taking care of who here? It's a very legitimate question. Is your wealth taking care of you, or are you taking care of your wealth? I think we are so tempted to worship at the altar of wealth because we think that our wealth it's going to supply our needs. It's going to take care of us. But here's the sad reality. Our wealth can't take care of us because it needs to be taken care of by us. Everything that wealth gives us needs to be cared for and nurtured and protected and coddled. 
Indeed, the more expensive a thing is, the more we have to handle it gently, like a little baby bird. And that's true, the more expensive that instrument is, the more you got to protect it and coddle it and be gentle with it, and on and on it goes. So here's the tragic irony. We exhaust ourselves, laboring to amass wealth, and then once we've amassed it, we exhaust ourselves laboring to take care of what we've purchased with our wealth. And then, having built our fragile little wealth god with our own exhausted little hands, we fall down before it and praise it as our great deliverer. God forbid that we would be so foolish to do that. But we do do that, don't we? We look to the things that we purchase with our wealth to deliver us and to save us. But it really doesn't work because they actually need to be sustained and saved by us. Boethius was the sixth century philosopher. He wrote about the vanity of earthly things. And he dedicated the third book of his treatise to the vanity of wealth. And he writes that he wrote a whole bunch of really good things here, but he wrote this. He says, the riches which people think make them self-sufficient compel them instead to require external protection. He's talking about the people in his day who would become rich, and then they would have to go out because they were rich, and they'd have to hire bodyguards, and they'd have to hire security for the, for the wealth that they had accumulated. And Boethius is saying, you know, you think that you're going to be ushered into power through wealth, but you're actually ushered into captivity through wealth. Then he makes this comment about how our truest needs can't be met by wealth, but I think even this statement that he makes, is, it even has relevance or more direct application to wealth itself. Listen to this, what he says. He says, for it sits there with its mouth open, making incessant demands, and even if it is gorged with riches, it must still remain there waiting to be satisfied. What a tragic image of our possessions our wealth sitting there like a baby bird with its mouth open, crying out to be taken care of. St. Augustine critiqued the people who were worshiping the images of pagan gods in his day, and he wrote of them, it was not the men who were preserved by the image, but the image by the men. That's how you know a false god, Augustine says. If you have to take care of it, it's a false god. Because the real God takes care of you. In the same way, wealth can't take care of us. It needs to be taken care of by us. Are you vainly spending your energies amassing things for yourself that only potentially tie you down? Things that you think will give you freedom, but end up only being fetters on your feet. Perhaps that's some of you here today. You spent your life working hard to earn lots of money so that you can buy a big house and a nice car and fancy clothes, which you've done, but you still don't feel free. And so you're in the process of doubling down on the same bet, thinking that maybe you'd feel more free if you bought an even bigger house and a nicer car and fancier clothes. But I can tell you that bigger and better won't make you feel happier or more free. It's quite possible you might only be tightening the fetters. Okay, now listen, I'm not telling you how much to spend on your house, or how much to spend on your car or your clothes, nor am I saying, and hear me on this, nor am I saying that having wealth is inherently wrong. 
As we'll see in the weeks to come, there's no one right answer to the question of how much is too much. Right? There's no one right answer. It'd be so much simpler if we could just turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4, and it just said, if your median income is this much with these number of children, you live in Oak Park or Berwyn or Forest Park, this is how much money you get. And they'll be like, okay, simple. Very good. That's so simple. But it's, it's, that's not how it works, right? There's no one right answer, right? And everyone's needs are unique. And listen to this. We're going to get to more on this next week. Everyone's calling is unique, right? So whatever the Lord calls you to, that doesn't mean he's called it to me or to the person next to you, right? So don't, don't start judging everyone that's got wealth as though you think that there must inherently be foolish. That's not necessarily the case, Ultimately, the answer of how much is too much has to come to me and to you from God, uniquely in our own particular context and situation. But I am saying, I think Jesus is saying, be cautious, be careful. And here's the reality we have to grapple with, whether we have lots of money or little of it, wealth is a burden that must be carried it can't carry you. You have to carry it. So if you're going to carry the burden of wealth, own it as a burden to be carried. Not a source of deliverer, not some God that can set you free. Because your wealth can't set you free. It's a burden to be carried. Maybe a necessary burden the Lord has laid upon you, but it is a burden to carry. If you're trying to find yourself in your possessions, you will never find yourself. Some of you perhaps have heard of the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. He wrote a lot of very confusing things of which most I do not understand, but he wrote this book called The Sickness Unto Death. And he writes this, which I thought was very poignant. The secular mentality consists simply of such men who, so to speak, and listen to this, such a great line, mortgage themselves to the world they use their capacities, amass money, carry on secular enterprises, calculate shrewdly, etc., perhaps make a name in history, but they have no self. No self for whose sake they could venture everything. No self before God, however self-seeking they are otherwise. Your money and your possessions cannot give you a self. They can only bind this self up if not done with God. Our life consists of more, Jesus tells us, than the abundance of our possessions. So the first reason our money can't take care of us is because we have needs that money can't meet. The human person just simply has needs that money cannot meet. And the second reason our money can't take care of us is because money can't even take care of itself. All right, so where to from here? This sermon has been about what we shouldn't do, about the reasons that money is a, a vain hope as a false god, about the futility of looking to money to take care of us and meet our truest needs. Yet that's only half the story and not the most important half. Next week, we're going to look at the alternative to money, namely God's provision to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus meets our deepest needs in a way that money never could. And here's the super good news. Jesus doesn't need us to take care of him. 
We don't carry Jesus around like a burden. He carries us around. He takes care of us. Money, like all the good things that God has made, and it is the good thing, right? I mean, let's not try to demonize money. Jesus says it's the love of money that gets us into trouble, but not money itself. Money, like all the good things that God has made, is a good gift from a good God who loves us, and our wealth is to be received with humble gratitude and then used wisely in the spirit of love. That's kind of getting ahead to where we're going to go here in our sermon series. But in both of our passages this morning, Jesus begins to point us in the right direction. We haven't focused too much on this, but it's worth noting here. He tells us in Luke that we should be rich towards God. The problem with the foolish man was that he was rich towards himself, but he wasn't rich towards God. What does that mean to be rich towards God? We've got to get to the bottom of that. And then in Matthew, which we've just read here, he tells us we shouldn't store up for ourselves treasures on earth, but we should store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Well, what does that mean exactly? We've got to get to the bottom of that as well. We're going to do our best to get our head around those ideas in the weeks to come. But for now, let me encourage you to take some time this week, purposely take some time to prayerfully come to terms with the futility of trying to find your security, your happiness, your sense of self in earthly treasure. Just let the weight of the futility of that sink in. I'm not telling you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor not telling you to move out of your house. I'm just, just come to terms with the futility of trying to find your hope, your security, and your sense of self in something that simply can't deliver it. Our closing song this morning is a continuation of this theme. So we haven't, I haven't leaned into the gospel quite as much as I would normally hear in this sermon because it's showing all the ways that that worldly wealth and money can't be for us a deliverer, right? But as we close out this song, let the words that we're going to sing be a reminder of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that where all else gives sway, when the world crumbles and money crumbles with it and wealth crumbles with it, we have a hope in Jesus Christ that cannot be destroyed by the crumbling things of this world. That's the place to put our hope. So let me pray for us, and then let's sing this hope together uh, as a church. Father, thank you that we have the hope in Jesus. Thank you for the words we have here from Jesus about the futility of trying to find our hope in things that ultimately can never satisfy, things that the moth will eat, the rust will destroy, that thieves will steal. And even if we preserve these things, Lord, we ourselves will be eaten by the worms, as it were. We cannot be sustained by money, cannot be sustained by wealth. We need to be sustained by you. Give us wisdom for that in the weeks to come. But for now, Lord, I pray you would help us to come to terms with the futility of trying to find our hope in something else besides you, namely money. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.